standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 287 of the Standard Issue Podsy. I'm Mickey Noonan and when it comes to months, I, I kind of like January. I feel like it gets a hard press. Yeah, I agree. Not least because January is a bit crap in your mind. So I always plan loads of stuff in January. So I've got really busy January. I've got loads and loads of stuff to look forward to. So it's going to be great, fingers crossed. The universe, if you are listening, if you could pretend Hannah didn't say that, that would be great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. Not a fan. Not a fan. Okay, you're not going to be Miss January in our in our calendar, <laughs> girl style calendar then. Whips out Chelsea buns. Um, <laughs> no, I. it's cold. It's very cold. I obviously took my daughter to nursery this morning and usually I'm like, oh, look at my walk to nursery. Isn't it fun? Isn't it lovely? Look at the sea. And this morning I was like, fuck off see yeah got sprayed sprayed by the surf on the way home i've started walking again and uh because it was dark outside i had my blinds closed i put my coat on and i opened the front door and it was just shooing it down with rain <laughs> and i hadn't noticed it and i was like oh come on honey you can do this and i got to my gate which for people who don't know my house and for good reason is about seven paces and i went nah fuck it <laughs> It's too much. Been snowing as well. It's, yeah. I mean, I'm British. I'm absolutely legally obliged to tell you that it's been snowing. What's it doing in London? Because I'm, I'm coming down tomorrow. So what's it doing? It's snowing, Joan. It's very cold and it's snowing. But is it settling is the question? Nah. Oh, good. I tell you what it is doing, Jen. It's running tubes, which I am very pleased about because I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm going to be spending the evening with Jared Harris. Also Mickey. <laughs> but slightly more excited about the Jared Harris bit. I don't know how to feel about this, apart from... No, no, I do know how to feel about this. I totally understand, Hannah. I'm on I've board. known him longer even than you, Mickey. What, what are you going to see? I assume that's what's going on, obviously. I mean, yeah. um, unless there's some very weird shit happening. But yeah, <laughs> we won a competition. <laughs> no, uh, we're going to go and see The Homecoming, which is a pentaplay, which is on at the... I always call it the new Vic, but it's not the new Vic, is it? It's the young Vic, because it's the opposite of the old Vic, but I go with the wrong opposite. And I'm excited. I've never been to the young Vic before. I've been to the oh, old it's Vic. Nice. Well, you have. We've been to the young Vic together. Okay. Yeah. Was Jared yeah. Harris there? I wasn't listening. <laughs> no, the bunk was there. Oh, did we go and see Death of a Salesman at the young Vic? We did. And we sat on a little bench right at the top. Is that where we are again? I don't know, because we bought Lucky oh, Dip surprise tickets. surprise tickets, yeah. Yeah. So we'll find out when we get there. We could be on Jared Harris's lap. <laughs> Who knows? I know. I know. Oh, talking, of, uh, talking of actors that I've seen that we absolutely love, did you see Nick Offerman won an Emmy at the weekend? Did he? For The Last of Us? For The Last of Us. Because they have so many categories. They have a second one, a bit like we do with the BAFTAs. And it was, uh, I think it's called the Creative Emmys. I think the same way we call them, might call them the, the Creative Craft BAFTAs. BAFTAs. Yeah, the craft batters, yeah. and it's because uh, he's like he was guest actor in a limited series or something. So, but he gave a wonderful speech in which he called Murray Bartlett the girth from Perth, <laughs> and he called Megan Mullally my bride and legal property. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, oh, I love him! I love Offerman. He's so cool. Anyway, who's this other one? I'm Jen Offord, and pretty much the only time my three-year-old wasn't an arsehole this weekend was when she was litter-picking. Bad for you, good for the environment. Yeah, quite. We did our two-minute beach clean. Went on a bit longer than two minutes because she was being nice, so so <laughs> thought we'd extend it a little bit. Just we extend that run. We cleaned the beach run. for nine hours. Oh. Yeah. 
well, no, not quite. But uh, yeah, no. So it's it's good to know that there's something in the world that makes her happy. Oh, Pointing out rubbish for me to pick up. Mummy, there's something here. There's something here. <laughs> there's something here. Great. She's a very good helper. Well done, Lyra. Coming up, I chat with journalist Sarah Graham, who specialises in writing about women's health. And boy, does she have some positive stories for us. No, no, she does not. Because we are chatting medical misogyny and her excellent book, Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution. I talk to Lonely Planet writer Jade Bremner about how to do a bucket list holiday on the cheap-ish. Emma Raducanu is back. And other stories in Jenny Off the Blocks. And we spend time with two masters of understatement oh, and God, it's so glorious. for this yes. week's Rated or Dated as we watch 2003-2004's Touching the Void. But first, Bill's Bill and a whole heap of body temperatures. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. What's more surprising to you, Jen, that Peter Bone's girlfriend is replacing him as a Tory candidate or that Peter Bone has a girlfriend? <laughs> Mr. Peter Bone. Mr. Peter Bone. Is he the one who's been in trouble? He's been in trouble, but I believe it's for bullying. Uh, but there might be some other accusations in there. Not to be those people who don't use a, a woman's name. Her name is Helen Harrison, by the way. That seat is Wellenborough. Just so we uh, we have all the facts there, but yeah, wow. I shan't say what I was going to say in case it's <laughs> <laughs> never has the words same old, same old been so. Yeah. Oh dear. Now, Hannah, speaking of same old, same old, I want to direct you to a headline I saw yesterday, which I thought pretty much summed up our government and the current situation in the UK at the moment. Was it? You can all fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, in a way, yeah. yeah. Uh, you might have seen at the front page of the Telegraph, Sunak, I'll cut tax by curbing welfare. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it feels very much on brand with recent announced policies by HMRC that give them powers to, for example, snoop on universal credit claimants' bank accounts and require companies such as Airbnb and Vinted to tell them how much money individuals are making on side hustles rather than just, I don't know, trust them to complete a self-assessment. I mean, yeah, ideally people would declare all their earnings, but I would really like to see that same energy applied to making rich people declare all of theirs, for example. I think there was quite a lot of panic last week of people saying, am I going to be charged because I'm selling, like, second-hand kids' yeah. clothes? And the answer is, of course, no, because you no. bought those children's clothes, so you will be selling them at a loss. It's about people who use it to sell at a profit. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also there's, you know, there's various things that, you know, tax-free allowances and whatnot that, yeah. you know, if you're just doing it on a sort of very small scale, then that's a completely different situation as well. Yeah. So, yeah, in fact, Martin Lewis, I think, put some information out there on his Twitter, which if you are worried about these things, I would recommend you go and have a look at. But anyway, what I'm saying is things feel pretty regressive at the moment. Oh, yeah. And that was confirmed to me yet again this morning by the news that just a year after energy companies were told to stop force-fitting prepayment meters in people's homes, EDF, Octopus and Scottish Power have been told by the regulator Ofgem that they can resume the highly questionable practice. It was stopped in the first place after it was discovered that British Gas had been installing them inappropriately. 
Yeah. The idea behind a prepayment meter, in case you're like, why wouldn't you have a prepayment meter if you're, you know, struggling to pay or whatever? So the the idea is that for someone struggling to pay their bills, it prevents them from accruing further debts. And that is a very generous way of looking at it. (laughs) Because, of course, if they can't, (laughs) well, you know, they get disconnected. Disconnection from supply is frowned upon or at least it used to be well, it's also worth mentioning that tariffs for people on prepayment meters are generally worse they are and i don't know what it's like now except that i do sometimes find myself in a queue for people in my local shop who are buying topping up electricity but i grew up in a house with a prepaid meter and you know it doesn't really help if you, your electric runs out at one o'clock on the morning on, on a Saturday, how you're going to get new electricity. There is generally a panic button you can press, which will give you a, it used to be a pound, I'm sure it'd be a fiver, that lasts so little time. It's such a ripoff, that, that mm. panic button. Yeah. It's, it's disconnection by the back door, basically. Mm. It's disconnecting people when it's harder to do it like yeah. through the official channels because as i said it's frowned upon so yeah it's it is not great and people have been campaigning against it for years and years and years certainly back when i was working on this policy area which is quite a long time ago now anyway ofgem has drawn up new rules to protect vulnerable customers that is the over 75s unless someone younger also lives in the home which feels like a bit of a weird one to me if you're concerned about the health impacts on older people, which you should be. Yeah. The under twos and anyone with a terminal illness or medical condition worsened by the cold. Any company breaking the rules would face penalties, including unlimited fines. Still, no one outside of these groups deserves compassion or consideration for the conditions they could develop as a result of living in a cold home, apparently. Oh, my God. It's so miserable, isn't it? Still general election this year, general election this year. So, for anyone hoping a new year might bring an end to the seemingly never-ending culture wars, or at least a bit of quiet before the UK and the US both have an election, well, that's not happened, Jen. Have you, can I ask, been following the story of Claudine Gay? No, I'm not even sure I know who this person is, if I'm honest. Okay, so for you, Jen, and for anyone else who hasn't, here's a summary. I stress that word, summary. As ever, other, more detailed news is available. In July last year, Gay took office as the president of Harvard, making her only the second woman to hold that role and the first person who wasn't white. Good for her. Fast forward to December 2023 and Gay appears in front of a congressional committee hearing along with the presidents of two other fancy-pants American universities, MIT and the University of Pennsylvania, which is commonly known as Penn. They were asked about how their institutions would respond to anti-Semitism on their campuses, specifically if it would be a violation of codes of conduct if someone called for the genocide of Jewish people on the campus. Gay answered, it can be, depending on the context. The other two presidents gave similar answers. Now, it's worth saying that America's laws around freedom of speech and the fact that its universities are private institutions means that, however unpalatable that answer might be, it's also likely true. Although I'd add, actually saying that as a response would have been much easier and likely saved a lot of future hassle for all three presidents. By replying in the way they did, they sounded quite glib. Up pops Christopher Rufo, who I've not really got time to describe here, 
other than to say he's some sort of ultimate culture warrior for the right, also <laughs> a bellend and a hypocrite. He's brandishing claims which appear to be true, accusing Gay of plagiarism in her work. Uh-oh. There follows a lot of calls for her resignation, and then something really strange happens. The left circles the wagons, the end result being everyone appears to agree that Gay hasn't done anything wrong, even if what she has done would have got her kicked out if she were a student. A number of editorials appear in the media claiming that plagiarism ain't no big thing and that Gay is being targeted because she's black, which may well be true. Although it's worth stating that Penn's Liz McGill, who is white, had already resigned over an equally crap appearance in front of the committee. This goes on for a few weeks with Gay standing by her work and reports suggesting there were about 40 recorded accusations of plagiarism against her. Oof. Then here comes William Ackman. Who's that, you might ask? He's a billionaire hedge fund manager and big donor to Harvard. Using social media to campaign against Gay, who he accused both of plagiarism and not taking a strong enough stand against anti-Semitism on campus, because if you can remember, that's where all of this started. Gay resigned last week, which brings this long and sorry saga to an end. Oh, wait. No, it doesn't. Because here come some new claims of plagiarism against Neri Oxman, an architect and designer who Business Insider claimed, quote, stole sentences and whole paragraphs from Wikipedia, other scholars and technical documents in her academic writing. And who the hell is Neri Oxman? Checks notes. She's the wife of Bill Ackerman. At which point, <laughs> a whole load of people who had cared very deeply about plagiarism, including Ackerman, suddenly have a lot of nuance that they want to discuss. And everyone who defended Gay suddenly having some very strong views about why using other people's words without attribution is wrong. Fucking clowns. The lot of them. I mean, it's hard to process all of that, really. It's sort of, if I could summarise it in a meme, it would be the one where all the Spider-Mans stand and point at each other. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. It's not about caring about wrongdoing. It's about caring about who did the wrong. Getting one over. Or not did the wrong. It's just, the whole thing is just spectacular. And while quite sad, though, Harvard's first black, president and only the second female president had such a short tenure i do believe there are probably a lot of brilliant black female scholars out there who haven't got massive plagiarism things hanging around them so maybe you've wanted them the job instead yes let's see (laughs) let's see let's see what happens anyway jen it's time for some good news especially if you are one of two-thirds of women who are going through the menopause and experiencing hot flushes which if you've had them, read about them or listened to a friend screaming into the sky or indeed this podcast, I can tell you can severely impact daily life. A new drug, Fezolinton, Fezolinitan, who knows, prevents hot flushes, we are told, by blocking a brain protein, which helps regulate body temperature. It will be available privately on prescriptions from next month after winning the approval of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. That said, a 30-day supply cost $550 in the US, which is about £430. I mean, with that in mind, it's obviously hoped that the drug, marketed as Vioza, will be available on the NHS at some point in the future. The British Menopause Society said, quote, It is likely to offer many women experiencing VMS considerable improvement 
in their day-to-day quality of life. Hurrah! Hurrah, yeah. I mean, it's only really hurrah when it's available to all and not just to the people who can afford it, but it's good news. Yeah, that's that's like two good women's drugs news in two weeks. But yeah, yeah. Maybe we're on a roll, fingers crossed. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask ourselves, what will become of the poor, poor domestic abusers? As we sadly revisit the murder of the model and presenter Reva Steenkamp. You'll all remember Reva, who was shot and killed by her boyfriend, South African athlete Oscar Pistorius, on Valentine's Day 2013. We all know Pistorius was both an Olympic and Paralympic athlete, a multi-gold medalist, etc, etc, a hero in his home country and to millions of people the world over. Pistorius, who argued that he'd mistaken his girlfriend for an intruder in his home when he shot through the locked bathroom door, was found guilty of culpable homicide in September 2014 and began a five-year sentence the following month. He was transferred to house arrest a year later before his conviction was upgraded to murder, and he returned to prison in July 2016. He was released on parole last week. Let's not even get bogged down in that. You can do the maths yourselves. What I want to talk about is the relentless desire expressed in the thousands of Colin Inch's TV programmes and documentaries dedicated to this to understand Pistorius's motivation and, worse still, the open invitation to care about his future and how he threw it all away. At the risk of trotting out the same tired lines, this is a courtesy he did not extend to his girlfriend when he ended her life. BBC News ran an article last week which appears to have been edited to reflect, I would say, rightful criticism of it, asking what next for Oscar Pistorius, who it referred to as a fallen hero. Given how often these conversations come up, I feel like we should be at the point where such criticism is anticipated and therefore avoided by just not writing the headline. Pistorius was a hero. Up until the point that he shot dead Reva Steenkamp, his completely defenceless girlfriend cowering behind a locked door, and was found guilty of her murder. At which point he becomes, well, a murderer. And at which point, I've got to be honest, I don't care too much about what happens to him next. Yeah, I I noticed some other criticism, and actually you've done it here, but I think it's okay within the context of this, is, is... Almost immediately, people go in with what his defence was, it seems, you know. I mean, it's different because you're talking about it within the context of how it's being reported. But so many people just go straight in with that. And we don't go in and say Fred West, a man who said that he didn't actually do it. Mm. We we just say that Fred West killed people. We just say that Shipman killed people. Why in this situation do we always explain what his defence was? I think the other thing, and I also, I've done it here, but like, it is that the whole story's about him. Why is the whole story about him? He's obviously the famous one, but the story's about like, oh, well, you know, what's going to happen to him? Blah, blah, blah. Well, like, what happened to his girlfriend? She fucking died because he killed her. Yeah. Like, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, you would hope obscurity would be what would happen to him, but... Yeah. Yeah, quite. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Sarah Graham, award-winning freelance health journalist, founder of the Hysterical Women blog and author of Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution. Sarah, hello. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, bloody lovely to have you. And bloody lovely to have your excellent book, Rebel Bodies, which is a deep dive into the gender health gap, which, as has been discussed on this podcast many times, is a many-tentacled patriarchal monster. Apart from being a woman with health, what got you into this area? So really, it was through my work as a journalist. Um, I've been writing about various different aspects of women's health for about the last decade. And probably sort of five or six years ago, I noticed that a lot of the issues that I was writing about, really kind of diverse issues. So, you know, it might be menopause, it might be endometriosis, or it might be some of the less obvious things like mental health or chronic illnesses. I was hearing the kind of very similar things were coming up all the time. And one of the things that got me really just really angry, actually, was, you know, women saying to me, I'm going to my doctor about this and I feel like I'm not believed. I'm being dismissed, I'm getting bobbed off, I'm being sent away without any solutions. And I thought, this is really interesting because the other thing that struck me was that all of these women were saying, I feel like it's just me. I feel like I'm on my own with this. I feel like there's something wrong. Like maybe it is all in my head. Maybe I'm just losing the plot. Maybe I'm just weaker than other women. And so that pissed me off a bit. And I thought, you know, I don't want these women to feel like they're on their own because I know that they're not. I'm talking to dozens of them. Um, So I started initially um, my blog, as you've mentioned, Hysterical Women, basically just to prove a point that like these women are not on their own, that this is not, a lot of different isolated incidents. This is a big systemic problem that's happening to loads of people. And so Rebel Bodies really kind of grew out of that. And as well as those personal testimonies on hysterical women, you also had a hashtag, shit my doctor says. And I wondered if you could give us a few examples for the listeners, because it is really shocking. And I think seeing it written down and knowing it's being said to other women, because I've had a couple of shockers, is is a weird sort of comforting yeah yeah no absolutely and I think I think that was what what really kind of made it take off in a way is that women were just like yeah I've had stuff up and and sometimes it's so innocuous that you sort of don't really think anything of it until you hear all these other stories and you're like oh fuck yeah it's like my doctor said this the one that always sticks in my head and actually it wasn't a patient that it had been said to it but it was somebody who was a medic themselves they worked in theatres and it was a surgeon who had said they hated doing the endometriosis surgeries because all of these women were just fucking mental Jesus Christ and she wrote to me and she said I have endometriosis myself and I you know I just really felt for these women the surgeon who was operating on them literally to diagnose whether or not they had it had written them off before they were even under the anaesthetic and that's probably the one that kind of struck me the most in terms of just the like really blatant misogyny that goes on in, in some of these hospitals. You know, but there are all sorts, you know, things like women that are having problems with painful sex being told, oh, just have a glass of wine. Yeah, just have try a and relax. Yeah, you know, as if women haven't thought of these things, you know, <laughs> as, if, as if they haven't been psyching themselves up for months to you know even work up the courage to go to their doctors you know because nobody wants to talk about my vagina hurts during sex like that's not an easy thing to to bring up you know women being told that you're just stressed have you considered working fewer hours at work you know stuff like that just really patronizing often really just a huge range from from kind of 
I suppose, sort of paternalistic and patronising all the way through to that much more extreme misogyny. It's quite overwhelming. I found that when I was reading Rebel Bodies, it can be quite overwhelming because we can discuss this and we are discussing this and the, and the, the conversation has got louder and, and more broad ranging, which is absolutely amazing. But women still have to go to their doctor at some point And it's like, OK, well, I'm probably going to face some of this. Because it is worth saying, as much as the comment made by that surgeon was a male surgeon, misogyny within big medicine, as I'm going to term it, has absolutely infiltrated into some of the women who work in it as well. So it's not just going to come from men. It is, it's institutionalised, really. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I quite often say is, you know, people will say to me, is it only male doctors? But actually, I think particularly with things like period problems, with the menopause, sometimes it's the female GPs who are the least sympathetic because if they've had a really easy time of their periods, of, you know, childbirth, postnatal stuff, menopause, it's very easy to kind of think that your own experience is universal. And then if other women are coming to you saying, my periods are really debilitating or, you know, I keep leaking after I've had a baby or my menopause symptoms are really awful to go, oh, it's not that bad. Just get on with it. You know, billions of other women have to just put up with it. Well, come on, Sarah, we do have to, you know, get our flaps of steel because pain, trauma and suffering are just it's just part and parcel of being a woman. <laughs> come on. But yeah, breast cancer as the anomaly, it is fair to say that virtually all health issues that primarily affect women are poorly understood, poorly researched and underprioritized, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think doctors themselves do have a real challenge. And I'm, I wanted to be very clear in the book that this isn't just about misogyny and doctors who hate women, you know. There is a real issue of doctors having less understanding about women's bodies, about the conditions that affect or predominantly affect women. And that is a real challenge. You know, we, we also have challenges around resourcing, which means that in many cases, even the doctors that really care, that are really passionate about women's health, that really want to advocate their patients, you know, they might not be able to refer people on to specialists because there isn't a specialist in the area or there's a two-year waiting list. They might be limited in what they can prescribe. They might just not have the diagnostic tools needed because, you know, things like ME, for example, we're really limited in our understanding, in our ability to diagnose it and in our ability to treat it. I talk in the book about a knowledge gap and a trust gap, terms coined by an American journalist called Maya Dusenbury. So, you know, that knowledge gap is huge when it, when it comes to women's health and it really does put doctors at a disadvantage as well as their patients. I guess a big question is, I mean, it's all a big question. I just looked at my next question after this and thought that is also a big question. Uh, <laughs> but the big question is, why is there such a huge disparity in how men and how women, trans people and AFAB, non-binary people are treated? I think it's really complex, which is part of the difficulty in sort in terms of sort of unpicking it and, and solving all of these issues. So you know, I think, as I mentioned, there are these big knowledge gaps. You know, I think when you look at the history of medicine, going back thousands of years, the male body has been taken as the default. You know, it is still almost overwhelmingly the male body that is used in textbooks in medical schools today. That is a really deeply entrenched issue where women's bodies are seen as other that's kind of, you know, one of the things I'm alluding to with the title Rebel Bodies is this idea that we are inherently kind of broken and different and unruly. 
that's an issue is, you know, that women, they've either been expected to just behave in the exact same way as male bodies, which we don't necessarily in, in lots of different ways, or when things have been different and not understood, they've just sort of been written off as hysteria, essentially. Those wombs have been wandering. Next big question, what is the cost of that? And I'm talking personal, political, social and economic. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. So if you think on an individual level first, you know, depending on um, the issues that we're talking about, you know, it might be that people are suffering debilitating pain every single month. It might be that they are left struggling with mental health issues. It might be that, you know, women who had children 10 years ago are still wetting themselves every time they sneeze or go for a run. And those impacts have such kind of wide-reaching effects on their everyday lives you know it affects people's relationships when you look at kind of some of the stats about the impact that the menopause has on people's marriages breaking down because of you know changes to their mood or changes to their sex drive or vaginal dryness stuff like this when you look at things like you know endometriosis is such a, a kind of classic example of people with really debilitating symptoms that stops them going into work you know, for a day or two every month or a week every month. And that has an impact on people's career progressions. It has an impact on their pay. There's been some really interesting research into a condition called hypothyroidism, which uh, massively disproportionately affects women. And that's been found to be a factor in the gender pay gap. Wow. So there are all these really, at an individual level, big, big big impacts you know if you think about things like postnatal incontinence it stops it stops women playing with their kids because they're worried that if they're running around the park after their children they're going to wet themselves so that is huge and then at a broader societal level you know we are seeing women dropping out of the workforce yep. or being absent from the workforce because of pain and that has a huge impact on companies you know companies that are more diverse have a more diverse workforce and have a well-supported and healthy workforce flourish and and do better you know the economic impact across the whole of U the UK is massive I mean things like endometriosis and the menopause are costing the UK economy billions every year from loss of productivity from treatment from you know and and a lot of that I think is down to this sort of false economy that it takes so long of women going back to their GPs and saying this is a problem and being dismissed and sent away and going back again. Actually, by the time they finally get help, they've wasted years sometimes and their symptoms have perhaps got worse in, in the time being. Yeah, just, just to put a little stat on that from your book, from a purely financial perspective, endometriosis alone is estimated to cost the UK economy £8.2 billion a year and 14 million working days per year are lost to the menopause. Yeah. It's not small, Fry. Absolutely. And when you think particularly about the menopause, I mean, these are senior, experienced women dropping out of the workforce often at, at kind of the peak of their career yeah. and losing those women costs companies, you know. It takes a lot to have to rehire, retrain people to take those women's place. Now then, as I'm sure listeners are gathering, all of the chapters in Rebel Bodies contain some traumatic slash horrific slash enraging true life accounts of women and minority bodies being treated appallingly by big medicine. But chapter nine is titled Death Means We Believe You. 
and is, as that title would suggest, particularly upsetting and recognisable to me. What struck me with that chapter and having talked about this and researched this subject a lot, I was kind of annoyed it hadn't occurred to me before, is that because women are disbelieved all of the time about their own pain and symptoms, they're also dismissed when they're advocating for others. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, I think it hadn't really ever occurred to me. I mean, I was pregnant with my first child while I was writing the book, so hadn't ever experienced this. And and so likewise, it hadn't occurred to me until it was a, a blog post that was submitted to Hysterical Women, actually, by the mother of a woman who had had very severe ME-CFS. And she's the woman who I, I later interviewed for the book. And it is just the most horrendous story. And her daughter had got very ill at 13. And both of them had been disbelieved when they'd been going to the doctors. They'd been saying, you know, she is not herself. Something is going on here. The daughter had been dismissed as hysterical teenage girl. The mother had been dismissed as neurotic. You know, there's nothing wrong with her. You're making it up. And in her case, it became so severe that at one point she was referred to social services. She was accused of having fabricated her daughter's illness. Uh. Just the most horrific experience of being disbelieved and really trying and fighting and advocating and pushing so hard you know she spoke about her daughter saying to her you know do you believe me mum do you think I'm making it all up and her mum saying I absolutely believe you because I know you and this is not right this is not you this is not normal her daughter as the title of the chapter alludes to sadly died she was 21 years old when she died I believe she was the first person in the UK who actually had her death attributed to MECFS on her death certificate. And her mother said that it reminds her of the witch trials. She said, death means we believe you now. And that her daughter would have been so pleased to have that vindication. But, but, but why did it have to come to that? Yeah. Why was it only once she died that, that, that doctors were able to say, oh yeah, she was actually really sick? It was such a harrowing chapter to write. I interviewed two other mothers who'd had similar experiences. You you can't imagine how hard that and how frustrating that must be to be to feel so powerless, to desperately want to help your own children and to have the people who are supposed to be there to help and to care actively blocking you and standing in your way and, and sending you home with nothing. Yeah, it's it's particularly haunting. Because you can see it happening. I wasn't surprised yeah. when I was reading it. It wasn't shocking to me in that way. It's just shocking that it's happening. And I guess this has all led to women taking it into their own hands. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase you just a little here. Because communities and women becoming incredible self-advocates, even becoming their own doctors, in inverted commas, before taking it to a GP or to big medicine, is simultaneously inspiring and depressing. And it's a paraphrase because I've switched the adjectives around that you use, because even though I know it shouldn't have to be this way, I've got to believe that this is mostly a good thing. And we've heard from women doing incredible things and making enormous changes because of these communities. But there are problems around self-advocacy, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that I wanted to be really clear about in the book, you know, I do not believe that the onus should be on patients, that the onus should be on women to fix these problems, you know. At the same time, I think without these patients speaking up, 
none of the conversations that we've seen happening in the last five years, you know, even in the last two or three years, would be happening. So it's a real kind of double-edged sword. And I think I really wanted to celebrate some of the advocates and the activists who have done amazing work to get this on the political agenda. You know, the government in 2022 published the first ever women's health strategy. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Like, seriously, 2022. <laughs> uh... I 100% believe that that was because of the patient-led conversation and the patient-led movement that's been building over the last few years. You know, because they had no reason to care before. And now they've got women knocking on their doors saying, you cannot ignore this anymore. And that, I think, is really important. But equally, I don't want people to read the book, you know, and feel like they've done something wrong or they've not done enough. So in every chapter, I include tips and advice and resources, things that you can do to try and advocate for yourself or for others. But if those things don't work, which they may well, you know, it's it's the luck of the draw at the end of the day. And if you are still struggling to get the care you need, that is not your fault. That is absolutely the fault of the healthcare system and of the professionals that you're dealing with. And, you know, you could make as many complaints and, you know, be screaming into the void for years and still never get anywhere. I don't want people to come away feeling like they've just not tried hard enough. Um, You know, equally, the thing that really frustrates me is I think we've seen capitalism really latch on to this issue, as it does. You know, we had all of those feminist slogan T-shirts in the noughties when feminism became a thing again. Um, And now I think a lot of companies are latching on to the fact that women's health is becoming a big deal. And we've got all of these new period products and menopause products and a lot of that is really good, positive, useful innovation. And I think a lot of what is really promising has been led by kind of female founders who have spotted gaps in the market and are trying to fill them. There's some great stuff out there. I love Femtech. I love, you know, reusable period products and and all of these things that are trying to sort of provide useful alternatives to women. But I think equally, you know, particularly when you look at the menopause market, there is so much really fucking expensive useless lotions and potions and like menopause retreats that are basically just the same as any other retreat but you've Uh doubled the price and stuck the word menopause on it you know so i think there's also a real danger of women being exploited because they're desperate because they're not getting what they need from their doctor you know diane danzebrink who um founded the make menopause matter campaign has spoken a lot about the women she hears from who have gone into debt, who have taken out loans, who have dipped into their life savings in order to access private treatment or to use products or, or you know, kind of miracle cures that they've seen marketed on Instagram. And that is really scary that, um, you know, women are desperate and they will try anything and women should not be going into huge amounts of personal debt in order to get care that should be free on the NHS. Oh, hey, hey, if, I, if it wasn't going to tangle my wires, I'd give you a stand innovation. <laughs> Are you confident when you go to the doctors now? Um, I mean, as I say in the book, I'm very lucky. I have two really brilliant GPs at my local surgery. And I, you know, but equally, it's difficult to know because I've never had any particular kind of complex health issues of my own where I've had to fight for myself. It's difficult to know 
if they would still be just as brilliant in in those circumstances uh-huh. if there were symptoms they couldn't explain or, or whatever i'm fairly well equipped with knowledge i've written about lots of different health issues my gp is fairly used to me going in and saying this is the issue that i want to talk to you about and because i wanted to talk to you about this issue last week I pitched an article on it and I interviewed this gynecologist who's an expert in their field uh, and this is what they said. She's used to me going in already having a really clear idea of what I think the problem is and what I think the solution might be. It can definitely help to go in feeling confident and empowered. It depends to some extent on the professional because I think some feel a bit intimidated by that. Or or nose out of joint, I think. With some of the yeah, old absolutely. Guard, yeah. I think I would still feel very anxious if there was something you know if I was suddenly having menopause symptoms or debilitating period symptoms or you know chronic illness symptoms so things like any or or long COVID I would really struggle I think or I would I would feel more anxious about those being taken seriously. It shouldn't be revolutionary that we're we're trusting women on what's going on with their bodies but here we are and here we still are and here we might be forever. Rebel Bodies is published by Bloomsbury Green Tree, available in hardback now and out in paperback on January the 18th. Sarah, where can people follow you on the old socials, please? Yeah, so I am mostly on Instagram these days at Sarah Graham Seven Writer. Uh, I'm still occasionally to be found on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now, at Sarah Graham Seven. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by travel writer and Lonely Planet writer, journalist Jade Bremner. Thanks for joining us, Jade. Hi. Tell me what holidays you've got planned this year. Let's start there. I'm going to the Maldives. Ooh. Yeah, I'm a surfer, so I try and find locations that have good waves, basically. Yeah, the Maldives is incredible for surfing. So rather than the luxury thing, I'm going to go on a liverboard boat, sort of cruise around the waves wow. and then jump off nothing tell me when you travel for work and then you travel for pleasure i mean i know there's a difference because one is work and one is pleasure but do they do they start to meld into each other a little bit of course i try and extend trips and do some things for myself quite a lot of the time like you get to go on holiday for a living but it really, you really do have to do some work you just your office is very nice yeah essentially it's really hard because i Tend, because there's so many places to go to, I tend not to go back to the same places, but there are a few places that I always go back to. If there's somewhere I haven't been and someone's paying me to go there, I'm going to check it out. Yeah. So it's January, and so you can't move for advert saying, there's a sale. How good are any of these sales? That's a good question, actually. I've never been someone that particularly shops for travel in that way. You get 20% off flights if you book between this month and this month yeah. surely they're just the months that they need filling because it's low season personally i don't listen to the marketing i figure out a different way to travel on a budget that essentially if there's a good deal it's a good deal right and it's if it's a location you want to go to i don't know if i'd necessarily go to a place just because it was a cheap flight unless i had an idea about what was there and had it in my mind already that i wanted to go there easy jet sales are okay to be to be honest because that is this is what price it would cost you. 
and then yeah. they're going to give you a hundred pounds off it. And the more money you spend, the the more money you get off. So that does seem like a reasonable deal to me. And last year I went to Copenhagen, which is ridiculously expensive. But I went to Copenhagen for four nights with EasyJet for 260 quid, which I thought was, it felt dirt cheap, I have to say. It did feel really cheap. And that was in August. Is that just a flight or a holiday? A flight and a hotel, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it might just be because I'm slightly obsessed and therefore I spend a lot of time looking. I don't necessarily know that it was advertising that you could go to Copenhagen for this price at this time. I think it's been, I spent a whole day trying to find that holiday. So, yeah, yeah sometimes the um, search engines or, you know, the c- price comparison sites have deals with airlines and hotels and things. And you do get a lot of discounts that way. The benchmark, you go to Google Flights, see what the prices are doing, and then you look at all the other sites. That's what I do. Right. And you can, you know, put on price alerts as well. That's always a good way to do it. And then whatever you want to pay, if it pops up, you can go. But I guess I'm more inclined to ignore marketing. (laughs) If I do want to go somewhere, then I'll do my research and figure out a way to do it. The other question I wanted to ask you about those sort of cheap flights is, obviously, Ryanair has a terrible, terrible reputation. And I would say from my personal experience... EasyJet are okay, but only if you fly early in the morning. The later in the day you fly, the more problems you tend to encounter. Last year, I went with Wizz Air, and I went twice with Wizz Air, once to Brazov, which was a new airport, and perhaps we could talk about that in a bit, and the second time was to Sarajevo. And they were no bother at all. It arrived on time, it was very simple. And the thing that everyone always tells you which is that they are absolute Nazis about the size of your hand luggage. My brother was travelling with a bag that was way oversized for cabin. Nobody stopped him, nobody checked. We didn't get charged anymore. I actually found Wizz Air to be quite a positive flying experience. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I have had mixed... <laughs> I actually um, have written for the airline magazine before, so um, I probably have to be careful <laughs> I do think that any, literally any budget airlines have their issues, but you can't argue with the price. I mean, even Ryanair, I've had really bad experiences with Ryanair, but you know, when they're seventy percent cheaper to a particular on a particular route, you know, it's just it's kind of like put up with a bad service, don't you? And if there is a better option. I'll take it. So with um, car rental companies, I've had some awful experiences when you get to a destination and then, you know, they had sand in my car and I got charged $450 and I was like, what? and they just take it out of your account as well. I think you can have a bad experience anyway. It's particularly, it seems like it's a particular thing with budget airlines. It's the price you pay for cheap travel, delays, possibly rude staff, possibly a seat that has got rubbish in the back seat pocket it's a compromise isn't it yeah and like I say I went to Brazov which I had been to god 30 years ago well longer than that I think probably when I was a teenager when Romania first opened up that was a brand new airport so actually that was a great experience because there was yeah we were basically one of two flights going out that day so it was you know, going through customs and going through security. Unlike Luton, where I'd gone through and it had taken about an hour to get through, it was really a great experience in that sense. It, it won't be like that forever, I would imagine. But while there aren't many flights going there, it was... But this is another thing about travelling off-season as well, because it's like people are put off by things like 
you know, rainy seasons and a little bit of cold or whatever. But I think what you gain is airports that have fewer people, mm-hmm. you, fewer yeah. queues, you have, you know, national parks to yourself or you have rainforests that kind of glisten in the rain. That's what they are. They're rainforests. Why wouldn't you go to a rainforest in the rain? There's loads of destinations. I think no, this is this is barking mad that people aren't going here this time of year, and it can save a bucket load of cash at the yeah. same time. Where are some good places to go this year? Well, I think people are wanting to travel again, especially after COVID. I think last year we saw a big boom um, in people actually getting on planes again. Bucket list destinations probably going to come into their own. People want to do the things while they can. We've got a cost of living crisis, so people aren't necessarily looking at the places they think are expensive. But I think there are ways to do those places. So, for example, this is, you know, if you're into the outdoors, somewhere like Iceland, which is notoriously... It's quite a sore point for me, Iceland, Jane. I was supposed to be going to Iceland in uh, November. Didn't go because the information was that uh, that the volcano was going to erupt tomorrow. And uh, we didn't go because we couldn't afford to get stuck there because we had things to come back to. And then it didn't ex- it didn't go off for about another three weeks. Yeah, I mean, look, it is the, it's called the land of fire and ice. Yeah. Volcanoes <laughs> erupts. But also it seems that people, tourists are still going, which is not, uh, they're saying don't go anywhere near the volcano. Some people want to sort of see lava flows and stuff, but this one is not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not. But there's plenty of other things to do. I mean, I have been numerous numerous times one of my favorite places and it is notoriously expensive i think i bought a burger there for like 60 pounds once oh my god God. but you don't go to well Reykjavik has some fantastic food but you don't go to iceland for food you go because it's one of the most geographically diverse places on earth it's got like ten thousand waterfalls i mean most of these waterfalls would be our national attraction if if we had them here you can walk through tectonic plates, you can see exploding geysers, but you can hike through, you know, pleated valleys. All of that stuff is free. And the vast majority of outdoor attractions, you know, people go for the northern lights so they don't actually see them. Mm. I think you may have, you know, if you can go back to Iceland, go in the summer and you've got 23 hours of sunshine or daylight, which you can be hiking at 1am. It's not unsafe. It's completely fine. You can pack so much into a small trip of sort of three or four days. You can see things that will blow your mind, honestly. And puffins in the summer. There you go. I mean, you've got, if you go with a group or, you know, if you self cater in any way, you can share meals. That's one way to save money and cook. cook. Don't, don't, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's not a, it's not about the restaurants. It's really about the outdoors. Yeah. Um, get get the local bus. The car hire's through the roof expensive. Local bus costs about two pounds, and it goes around the whole of Route One, which is Iceland's scenic ring road, and it stops at all these fantastic waterfalls and various other attractions. There's things like you know the Blue Lagoon, which is fantastic, very expensive, but there are free heated pools everywhere in Iceland. Hot pots, uh, you know on trails and just jump in and it's brilliant all these amazing community pools as well because they have all this free geothermal activity they get heated water which can heat all sorts of things and it's yeah it's completely eco so they've got they've built all these pools and and they're very cheap and they're brilliant it's like almost like our pub culture they have a pool culture in all every single little village has one but yeah and where is it doing flights for 13 pounds one way it's insane, isn't it? It's nuts. If you want to drink, 
Iceland heavily taxes their booze. So bring a couple of bottles of wine with you and you, yeah, just do it. And that's three hours away. You know, people go all the way to New Zealand and I think that Iceland is more spectacular. Bucket list stuff, you know, if people are looking at Asia and places like that. I uh, used to live in Shanghai and it's, I think people are looking at China once again. It's completely open for travel. There's no restrictions or anything like that. And it was quite a scary place for a few years, just purely because of their restrictions. But everything's opened up. It's a fantastic city. It's it's really, really great for food, nightlife, awesome architecture, really big city life stuff. So if you're thinking of somewhere like Tokyo, skip Tokyo for Shanghai. And, you know, you've got all the, the bonkers modern skylines that look like something out of Blade Runner. You've got Tokyo-esque sort of pedestrian thoroughfares with neon lights everywhere. And you've got heaps of colonial architecture and, you know, the Bund and the French concession is... It's, it all looks very different, but it's... And then hidden among it all is kind of this amazing drinking scene, cocktail bars and speakeasies, breweries. And then you've got a fantastic dining scene. So you can eat street noodles or, like, roadside dumplings for literally pennies. Or you can go for, like, a eight-course incredible Michelin-style meal, which will be relatively affordable there as well. I think they've got something like 150 Michelin-recommended restaurants it's really walkable and it's got this like kind of brand new modern metro. I think it's the world's second longest now. And it's 30p. It's 30p a ride. Wow. <laughs> you can go anywhere. If you want to stay, you could go as budget or as luxe as you like. You can go for, I don't know, a 20, literally 20 pounds a night stay in the Hilton. Or you can stay at, you know, one of the best hotels in the world. Sort of there, Shangri-La there is absolutely fantastic. The, Hyatt is is in one of the world's tallest buildings and the the rooms are are relatively speaking for a a hotel like that about 150 pounds I mean if that was in the US I don't know what it would be hundreds but yeah and flights are around 500 pounds direct but when you get there it is incredibly cheap and you get a lot for your money so you can get a incredible Asia experience and it used to be really hard when I lived there there was no Google translate or anything like that people on the street don't necessarily speak english but it's it's really easy now you just get out your phone and you're away excellent so that's if you want a big city experience bucket list big city shanghai excellent yeah what else i think costa rica is a good one to mention ever this is another bucket list one but people they want to go at the right time of year but as i was saying earlier i just you know rainy season in costa rica is brilliant and it is known for being an expensive, it's, I think it's the most expensive country in Central America. And peak season's around now, December to April. Rainy season's between August and November. And your trip is kind of almost halved in price. So people are, are I think, scared of rain on holiday. But yeah, tropical rains are quite different. They're really fun. You can have, you know, really hard tropical storms. And then it'll just clear up and be complete sunshine. Mm. And, and the wildlife thrives off it. So you've got like these rainforests that are kind of glistening and like really lush because of all this rainfall and when the rain stops all the nature comes out and you've got in Costa Rica you've got it all I mean you have monkeys like climbing around the trees you'll have sloths or like toucans everywhere and it's just you know everywhere you look there seems to be something some kind of biodiversity hotspot and they have these little things they're called um cabinas which is kind of like the I guess it's like a rustic cabin. 
they're local style and they've they have like it will be rustic for sure but it's much cheaper um and they're usually in tropical settings or you know wild places and there's also they do this other thing which is um like a hostel resort and they're kind of hip and trendy hostels essentially but they have lots of different ranges of rooms so you can have you know for solo travelers you can have a one bed sort of private room you might have to share a bathroom but again your rates will be significantly cheaper and they're quite trendy they might have you know hotel pools and spas and they don't look like cost they don't look like this grubby backpacker sort of sticky floor place that we're used to maybe when i was at university anyway but (laughs) hostels are so different i think that there's there's a big resurgence in certain destinations i think for yeah it's 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 that communal vibe without getting rid of your home comforts. Can I ask you a question? Two questions, in fact. With Costa Rica, with Shanghai, is this any kind of holiday? Is this family holiday, person travelling solo? It depends on the age of your kids. Costa Rica is great for kids. I think Shanghai will probably be more of an older destination. You know, there's going to be a, a fair bit of bar hopping and eating. If your kids just like to eat food, I feel like a city breaks are less family orientated mm. but yeah iceland is fantastic for kids yeah you know they're just like in awe of everything they look at everything if you're going to go off into the wilderness iceland's really set up for that they even have apps you can pinpoint your location at the start of a trail and at the end of a trail to tell the authorities that you're safe you can really go off and have an adventures there it is incredibly changeable the weather and you have to be careful that you know it can, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble because there's this place is alive it's you know there are volcanoes there are bubbling mud pools and but if you stick to the trails and you tell someone where you're going and things like that so there's absolutely no reason why you can't solo travel to to iceland and do adventurous stuff costa rica is kind of place that you meet other people as well especially if you're staying in these social spaces so yeah for solo solos couples and and families i would say all of all of those except shanghai you know we'd have to have a have older children, maybe. Yeah. What's next on your list? One place that I have returned to many times is Agadir in Morocco. And there's new flights. British Airways are launching a Gatwick route from March. And Jet 2. Jet 2's launching loads of flights this year. But one yeah, one of the, their destinations is Agadir in Morocco on the West Coast. And that's going from Stansted, Bristol, Glasgow, Leeds, Birmingham and Manchester. You know, that's a lot of flights. It's desert terrain there are beaches but it's an amazing amazing surfing destination so right. there's a little town called Tagazut um which is really famous for a wave called Anchor Point and that is you know people do go for sort of surf and yoga packages you know they're really good value there's a company Mint Surf they're they're super friendly and they do surf packages from 265 pounds a week and you stay in this cute little Moroccan world yeah, yeah. The flights, I think, you know, they're, they're starting from 20 to £30. Pounds. Thanks for talking to us, Jade. I'm going to get off this, this call and go and book myself another holiday. <laughs> People often don't think of Morocco and beach destination because, it, it, you know, it is, it is a Muslim country and it is, uh, I think, probably one of the more liberal Muslim countries. These surf towns are very, very used to people wandering around in bikinis. Be respectful if you're wandering through a town. But on a beach, absolutely no problem at all. I feel very safe as a woman. I think it's a up and coming spot. It's very much 
a developing country, so you will see sort of it's not going to be the pristine Hawaiian beaches that you see on the pamphlets. It will be, you know, there there will be some litter around, but actually desert beaches are incredibly beautiful if you can see past some sort of uh, social problems. You know, you get fantastic food, great places to stay for very reasonable prices. And then your favourite, Ryanair. Uh, they're flying to <laughs> they're flying to uh, Mallorca, Dubrovnik in early spring. There's also Royal Jordanian are offering uh, flights from Stansted to Jordan if you can. Um... Is it good to be flying to Jordan at the moment? I mean, I, I note that only recently, only really recently, EasyJet stopped flying to Tel Aviv. Yeah, I think Tel Aviv is is. I think actually Amman and, and Petra and places like that seem to be fine. I've had I had a friend that came back from there just before Christmas and said she was really hesitant to get on a plane and was very worried because it obviously borders Israel. Mm. And she was she said it was absolutely fine. Didn't it didn't feel like there was a, there was a war happening next door. Obviously at your own risk uh, if you want to travel to those places, but really it shouldn't affect um, Jordan. I think these places check the government travel advice. Make your own assessments, um, and it, it is a, obviously a fantastic place to visit. Yeah, and if you are obviously more inclined to uh, take those kind of risks, you will find you'll find an excellent deal to Petra, yeah. to Amman. You can't just count out every country um, that is close to a war zone. Otherwise, we wouldn't have many places to travel. Well, to. exactly that. Yeah, a lot of Eastern Europe would be out at the moment, wouldn't it? Yeah. Bulgaria, BH Air is, is starting a route from London to Bulgaria. And then, yeah, um, I, I think there's there's a lot of new routes, but it's it's whether the prices match up with your expectations. And yeah. I think it's it really is. I think you can do everywhere uh, more cheaply than you think. Mm-hmm. And this, once someone gets a reputation for being very expensive, for example, London, I actually just wrote the London, London Lonely Planet Guide and what you'll realise is that most people you know the American tourists can get double for their money now because the pounds yeah. are weak as a tourist London is a fantastic place to travel to right now I think that there's ways to do London very cheap yeah you know, and with fantastic free museums and um but it's it's very much uh once it's been given a name as, an, as a pricey destination it's hard to shake off oh absolutely because later in the year i'm taking my mum to see the fjords almost immediately everyone said oh my god they're so expensive and i was like you'd be surprised there's certain destinations for example iceland where everyone speaks perfect english yeah. um that's what's great about copenhagen yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and all of the scandinavian countries yeah. they are expensive but actually you ask ask a local how to do it ask people Thank you so much for your time, Jade. Yeah, no worries. Thanks to you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we're up at the net, back chatting the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Now, I recorded that line in the intro about Emma Raducanu on Monday and recorded this on Tuesday. Tuesday, that is, after I woke to the news that she had just withdrawn from a charity match in Melbourne where she's preparing for the Australian Open, which starts on Sunday. I'll come back to it because my initial story was about her being back, in capital letters, back after injury and surgery on both wrists in May last year. 
We've had a couple of false starts. She was supposed to compete in an exhibition match in December, which she withdrew from. And she finally made her return in Auckland last week, beating Elena Gabriela Ruse, but being knocked out in the second round by Alina Svitolina. Fair's fair. Svitolina is currently ranked 23rd in the world, and she was the second seed in this particular tournament. Radicanu took the first set on a tiebreak and forced the second to a tiebreak as well. So that is not bad going at all, actually. Now, she has, as I say, pulled out of the charity match that she was supposed to participate in this morning, as I record. This is because she said she was a little sore after a two-hour practice session on Monday. I don't think we should read too much into it, but obviously she's still feeling a bit rusty. I think that is absolutely what you'd expect and probably good to manage expectations at this stage if you're thinking about going and placing a sizable bet on her to win the Australian Open. Maybe don't do that. It's just great to see her back and to see her in a Grand Slam. She slipped right down the rankings after that timeout. She's 299th now and has a place in the tournament via a wild card. Hopefully she can do enough here to start edging back up the rankings again, get in another couple of wild cards and who knows, let's see what happens this year. She was supposed to face Naomi Osaka in this particular charity match. Osaka had already pulled out. Osaka's also making a comeback after giving birth to her first child in July last year. She also slipped very far down in the rankings. She's 833rd now. I can't quite get my head around this because my understanding was that rankings were protected during maternity leave. It looks like they're maybe only protected from when the baby is born, which seems like, I don't know, a bit of an oversight, but I could be wrong on this. At the time of recording, I couldn't get the WTA's ranking history tool to work, so I cannot offer a further explanation. I'll come back to you on this. Anyway, it is great to see Osaka back as well. She made it through the first round of her comeback tournament in Brisbane, but was knocked out in the second by Karolina Pliskova. Incidentally, I read some quotes from an interview Osaka gave in Style magazine in which she said that labour was the worst pain she had ever experienced. And yes, Naomi, I would have to agree with you on that. Okay, so in football, we are in transfer window territory. I'm not going to talk about that too much right now, primarily because the transfer window is silly in men's football and I'm reluctant to fuel a discourse that leads to the same in the women's game. In the men's game it's like Lionel Messi spotting Scunthorpe, Shocker etc etc and as a journalist you have to cover it just because everyone else is even though it's clearly bollocks. Let's not. But I will say that the world is waiting with breath that is baited to see whether Mary Earps moves on from Manchester United. There is a lot of speculation about a possible move to Arsenal. Those rumours seem to me to be credible given all of the successes she's enjoyed of late. I don't know why she would hang around at United, but let's see. The huge and indeed true news from the WSL this week is that Chelsea striker Sam Kerr is the latest high-profile name to fall foul of an ACL injury. That's anterior cruciate ligament. ACL ruptures are shitters and you'll know if you follow the game or indeed this podcast that women players are particularly susceptible to them. That's it. She's out for the rest of the season after picking up the injury during a training camp in Morocco. And that is really sad for her, not least because she missed part of the World Cup last summer with a calf injury. And it'll also see her out of the Paris Olympics if Australia qualify. And, you know, they may not qualify without her. So we shall see. What a blow also for Emma Hayes, who's in her last season at the club before moving on to the US. I, I can't cope. 
That's all from me this week, and I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated, Mickey. Which film, which contains, I think, the most full-hearted, you fucking can, that anybody has ever said, did we watch this week? It really does. This week, we watched Touching the Void, which, as well as being an accurate description of when my IBS is really bad, is also a 2003 docudrama about a mountaineering trip that went wrong. To be clear, went wrong is something of an understatement. Touching the Void is an absolute white-knuckle ride to watch, let alone to have lived through. In 1985, ambitious climbers Joe Simpson and Simon Yates set out to be the first people to scale the west face of Peru's 20,000-foot Ciula Grande, alpine style. That is to say, just two men, some rope, and a massive fuck-off mountain. That both are alive to tell the tale is a staggering tribute to human fortitude, captured first in Simpson's 1988 book, and later in Kevin MacDonald's critically acclaimed film, which came out in December 2003 in the UK and January 2004 in the US. It may have been critically acclaimed, but Touching the Void bags very little in the way of awards, although its one gong was pretty mighty as it did take home the BAFTA for Outstanding British Film. One of the ten incredible documentaries that weren't nominated for an Oscar, said IndieWire's Peter Neat, while the BBC One's film 2011 included Brendan Mackey's performance as Joe Simpson in their top five actors who should have won an Oscar but didn't. They're too fucking right. Mm. MacDonald describes his film as a drama documentary and over its 106 minutes it switches between a reconstruction more harrowing than Crime Watch with actors <laughs> Mackey, Nicholas Aaron and Ollie Ryle playing climbers Simpson and Yates and Richard Hawking who was their pal at a lonely base camp as their younger selves and interviews with the present-day Simpson, Yates and Hawking. It is a masterclass in the economy of storytelling. MacDonald leaves it to Simpson and Yates to relate what happened in tough, unflinching close-ups, and I cannot imagine a more classically English account of personal horror. (laughs) It's it's incredible. Honestly, (laughs) the understatement in this is just one of my favourite things on earth. (laughs) Yeah, and it makes the reconstruction seem even more dramatic. It looks steep, says Yates, and then the camera pans up a gargantuan, dizzying, terrifying, seemingly sheer face of rock, ice, snow, and shit me, I wouldn't even make it over the glacier. During the making of the film in 2002, Yates and Simpson returned to Ciula Grande for the first time since the events of 1985. Simpson, perhaps unsurprisingly, found it difficult and suffered PTSD, but said that he was happy with the film and its portrayal of the events. Yates, on the other hand, decided to have nothing further to do with the production of the film once he had returned to England, and we'll get on to the reasons for that in a bit. Now, I've read Simpson's book, and some of the interview sections sort of rang familiar as I was watching them, so I must have seen snippets. But I have never watched the film as a whole before. Hannah, I know you have seen this before. How many times have you watched it? Uh, Well, I actually read this as a book when I was in Australia, so probably about 10 years after it was out. It's one of those books that you just find in every single youth hostel. Of course. There is a copy of this lying around. So I read it at some point, I think when I was in Melbourne. And then I saw it at the cinema when it came out, and partly because I'd read the book, but partly because it was Kevin MacDonald, and he had just won an Oscar for One Day in September, which Uh is an incredible film about the Munich Olympics. And then I've probably seen it 
maybe once on DVD and then every time it's on the telly, I eventually gravitate towards it because it's so incredible. But about two years ago, my brother and I, now before lockdown, my brother and I actually went to see it as a play as well. Yeah, yeah, it has been made into a, a feel-good yeah. production. Which is a lot. Put it in the a lot category. I, I do quote this a lot. In fact, my episode of Griefcast, I actually quote Joe Simpson in that when he says... Um, you got to keep making decisions. It doesn't matter if they're good decisions or they're bad decisions. It's when you stop making decisions that you're stuffed. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Jen? No, never seen it. Never read the book. Uh, when you first said we were doing this, I feared that it was the one where the guy has to amputate his own arm in order to get off the mountain. So I was at least grateful that it was not that one. <laughs> so, okay, what exactly were those events on Seal of Grande in 1985? And what's Boney M got to do with it? Joe Simpson and Simon Yates are two climbing buddies who, full of Alps mountaineering experience and the spunk of youth, decide to scale the west face of Sierra Grande, something that no one has ever accomplished. They make base camp with a new pal, Richard Hawking, who they met travelling in Lima, and who makes it clear that Yates is much easier to get along with than Simpson. <laughs> Simpson, it seems, is the one with the most steely determination to conquer this mountain face, a.k.a. he's a bit of a stubborn arsehole. That's what's implied. He is the older one by four years. Some distance in sense of that he is, I think Simon Yates is 21, Richard Hawkins is about 19, Joe yeah. Simpson's in his mid-20s. He's so 25, I think he's, yeah. the, he's the bossy one as yeah. well on top of that by being the older one, yeah. Anyway, the climate, 18 minutes into the documentary, they're at the top. I don't like the summit because 80% of accidents happen on the way down, says Simpson. Mm. I mean... Quite. <laughs> Descending in a horrible storm, Simpson slips and really badly breaks his leg. Like, so badly that him just describing how one bit of his leg was now no, going into another no, bit of his no, leg no, 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 made no. me feel gippy. Holding his fists together, he demonstrates that the lower bone inside his leg drove oh. up through his knee into the one above it. Jesus Christ. Simpson knows he's probably stuffed. That's what he says, and probably stuffed. This is a word he's fond of using to describe an unthinkably dire situation when <laughs> you or I might choose to scream fuck and start crying. He expects Yates to leave him to die rather than the alternative, which is basically probably to die alongside him. It wasn't, Simpson says, part of their game plan. <laughs> no shit, mate. Instead, they come up with a plan to get them down the last 3,000 feet. Attaching themselves to each other using their whole 300 foot of rope, that's two lengths of 150 feet tied together, and a lot of toing, throwing, and extreme belaying. This works for, you know, a really good chunk of the distance until Yates inadvertently lowers Simpson over a sheer drop, leaving him dangling in midair and unable to take any weight off the rope. Neither knows what the other is doing because the storm is blowing a hoolie. An hour and a half in, Yates's position is becoming as untenable as Simpson's as he slips further down the mountain to what would inevitably be a fall of at least 150 foot to his death. Drastic times and all that, he cuts the rope. Simpson falls down the cliff and into a deep crevasse. Yates digs a snow cave for the night and the next day continues his descent, notices the crevasse and shouts for Simpson. Simpson is also shouting, but once again they can't hear each other, so Yates assumes Simpson is dead and heads back to base camp. I've made that sound like an easy journey. It really fucking isn't. The stuff. But it is skipping across sunny meadows compared to what Simpson does next. He goes deeper into the crevasse, crosses a snow bridge to get onto a steep snow slope, which he then climbs down to get back onto the glacier. 
From there, he spends three days without food and with almost no water, crawling and hopping on his very, very, very broken leg. Five miles back to their base camp, arriving mere hours before Yates and Hawking were about to leave, but not before they burned his trousers. (laughs) Which he's very angry about. That made me laugh. I was really quite angry about the fact we'd burned his trousers. Okay, birds, this is, to put it mildly, a fucking extraordinary tale of survival against the odds. At what point would you have died? Uh, probably, I would be Richard. I would probably have died on the walk to... Well, I mean, <laughs> Richard doesn't die on the walk to it, but I think the question of cutting that rope, who would or wouldn't survive, people always say, well, they'd both be dead. And I think would Richard would also be dead because I don't trust Richard to get back down out of the mountains by himself. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. That yeah. would be me. Jen? Uh, I think the very, very, very visceral, brutal uh, description of the leg break. Uh, but as he points I'm out, done. you don't die from a broken leg. We, you might if you're like, I don't know, if you faint from the pain or like, you know, collapse from the pain or whatever. I don't know. Like He's a double hard bastard. Fuck that shit. I think also getting across the glacier, that would have done me in before you even get to climbing the mountain. You know, even oh. like, again... They by eighteen minutes in, we're at the top of the mountain. They're cheering on the summit. The climb hasn't been easy. There's two hundred meters where they're climbing basically icing sugar. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and they've run out of gas. Not at that yeah. point, they haven't. I thought of you then, Hannah. The point at which they can't brew up. Yeah, I thought that's Hannah. He's <laughs> done. That's true. That's when Hannah would have died. When it took an yeah. hour for a brew, she'd be to make a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, at one point, Simpson gets Boney M's brown girl in the ring stuck in his head and it's almost his most despairing moment that he might die to a song he hates. And I wondered, what song would you least like to die to? Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, oh. Yeah. He really hates it. I I don't hate it, but it's so omnipresent that it gets on my nerves because it's just always about... And yeah, it gets on my nerves, so I think that's almost exactly the sort of thing that would appear in my head. Yeah. Or Saturday night. That's probably the equivalent of uh, of Bohemian, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. I, I was just about to say, at least Bohemian Rhapsody has different parts, so you yeah. can kind of make your brain travel yeah. to a different part, whereas Wigfield Saturday night, I mean, particularly if you're not able to do the dance moves, that would be very, very upsetting. <laughs> very frustrating, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's almost too many to choose from, but I think I'd have to go with the Grease Megamix. Might be quite nice. You might think, think of a wedding you were once at. No, it's when he goes, when he does the white grease, it just makes me die inside. I think it would be that Jen would just be lying there and suddenly go, where? Oh, fuck, I forgot about that. Yeah, maybe it'd be that. Oh, maybe it'd be that. Oh, God, can you imagine? Oh, the horror. (laughs) The horror, the horror. Jazz for me, anything remotely jazz would just make me so itchy. I don't know enough jazz to actually conjure some in my head, though, which is the fortunate thing. But that's the thing about jazz as well. Any notes out of order, you basically conjured some jazz yeah. into your head. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> Obviously, it's a very harrowing story, but I didn't find it a difficult watch. And I wondered how you felt while you were watching it. I think it's amazing. Genuinely, I think it's amazing because it's an amazing story. But on top of that, I think it's an amazing film. As in, you know, it's so beautifully shot. And like you say, it works so well. There's a bit where Brendan Mackey's going along, shuffling along backwards like he does, and they 
they drone shot, and it's one of the first drone shots I can actually remember seeing in cinema, and they drone shot up, and you can see how completely, like, covered with holes this place oh, is. Oh, the crevasses. And how close... When he's in the... He calls yeah. it the maze, doesn't he? The maze. Yeah, of... yeah that's... Ugh, um, when he's trying to get across that, and you just think, oh, it's in... it's in... it is incredible. And so I suppose it's quite uplifting, and I think it's really fascinating, because he constantly says, and he says it in this, I didn't actually get down the mountain because I wanted to live. I got down the mountain because I didn't want to die by myself. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really great podcast called the the Estonia, and it's about the sinking of a passenger ferry. And they interview one of the women who survived. Not many people did survive it. They interview one of the women who survives it, and she says that she was just standing on the deck, just basically just drifting off. She she could see her family and stuff. She was on her way out, and some guy just appears in front of her and says, "I'd like to take you out for dinner." And she was like, "What?" And he says, "But first, you have to get off this boat." And I think we're going to work really well as a team. So why don't we stick together and get off this boat together? And they do. Because if they stick together, they do survive it. Things like that, things like Touching the Void, remind you how many little stories we lose when people don't survive that stuff. All these little stories of what's going on in people's heads. So it's a real glimpse into human nature. It's like final ends that we don't often get to see. Totally, that like the human condition. And I think yeah. the, the dramatisation really captures that because it's so simply done, really, isn't it? That there's, there's three voices throughout it. That's all we hear, the three voices of those three men who mm. had that experience. One of them didn't really have anywhere near the same experience. But the dramatisation doesn't over-egg it. It also keeps it simple enough that we feel like we're right there along with them. When he is all mm. like, he's literally like, this is the final bit. This guy is not going to make it. Simpson is not going to make it. And it's like he's hallucinating and all the camera work goes really sort of shuddery yeah. and in and out. It's not over the top at all. It feels absolutely perfectly matched to what is being described. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. You're not going to agree with me on this and I will find it hard to justify my position, but it's kind of for the reasons that you've just said. It's not like Hollywooded up in any way at all. It is, as you say, quite simple. So I found it both extraordinary and dull at the same time. What? <laughs> wow. I don't understand, Jen. No, that's how I found it. That response is like jazz to my ears. I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> I'm going to hear I, you say that. I thought you might not. At the end. It's an extraordinary story and it's an extraordinary like insight into all of the things that you've just said. And it's like, you know, the human kind of will to survive and what he does is like unbelievable. I found it a really hard watch because it's so visceral at the same time. Like everything about it is kind of, you know, like the description of the leg break, the, you know, like the the gamminess of their hands and faces that are frostbitten to shit. Like, you know, the feeling of being in that crevasse, like the sort of, you know, I said to my mum as we were watching, I was like, I'm really fucking glad I didn't see this at the cinema because the, the claustrophobia of it and the puking and pissing himself is really, really visceral. So I found it a really hard watch, actually. Interesting. But, you know, absolutely fair, because it is it's, it's a harrowing experience. Yeah. And I was surprised that I didn't find it a hard watch. I found it very engaging. I liked how matter-of-fact it was. And while mm, yeah. it is visceral, I feel like it's 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 not over visceral. The only thing that really got me was the description of like his leg breaking, because he is just... <laughs> and he's almost relishing telling you about that, whereas yeah. there's very little kind of adornment to anything else that they say. Mm. And the other bit that I found 
really striking is when he gets very annoyed with himself for having a perfectly reasonable breakdown yeah. with that exclamation that Hannah said right at the top where he is just screaming and calling himself stupid and banging his head. Mm. And he's like, oh, I thought I'd be tougher than that. And I went, fucking hell, mate. <laughs> like, I don't know. How well, because you it's, be? it's interesting in, in that it's only told as a story from point A to point B. For anyone who's interested, there's a little documentary that I think was was a DVD extra about what how they actually got out of the mountains and yeah, him into is. a hospital. Because being down the mountain, and you can see it on YouTube, being down the mountain was only part of the journey, although he had help from then onwards. But it doesn't really tell you anything about their lives before this, except that they're young. That's the only thing that you really know and that they like climbing. And it doesn't really tell you that much of what happened afterwards, except that Simon Yates was criticised. So it's kind of just this 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 interesting snapshot because like there's a bit where Joe Simpson starts to talk about his family and then he backs away from it. You can feel him backing away from it. Simon Yates says, I thought I'm going to have to tell Joe's family this. But that's as far as they go into their sort of internal feelings. Joe Simpson is very, this is the thing. I got a pick. I put it here. This is how my leg was broken. He's very technical about yeah. it and kind of emotionless, which may be a result of telling that story over and over and over again. Because I thought they all of them were very emotionless in a way that I was a bit like, I don't know, like I was surprised by what they were prepared to admit. <laughs> Richard says some bonkers shit, doesn't he? Although I love yeah. it when he says that he thought, that can't be real Joe, that must be dead Joe. He just <laughs> yeah. up, And I just think ghost. that is probably what 19-year-old me would have thought. Absolutely, like 46-year-old yeah. me would probably be like, uh, no, I don't know. And actually I did want to talk about their relationship because this is the only thing I found odd about the documentary is that they don't come across as ever having been close friends when clearly they must have been because they've done all of this travelling and climbing together and climbing in a way that necessitates the deepest of trust and care for each yeah. other. And I get that, sad as I find this, they drifted and in fact hadn't seen each other for nearly 10 years before they met up again to film this. Well, they, and obviously they don't meet up, they'd film separately. But I don't think the film actually captures any kind of friendship between them. I think it, it fails for me on that score. I don't know anything about the book, so I don't know, like, because I don't know, I guess like you could be climbing buddies and not be like especially close, right? As long as you think they're good at what they do and you trust them in that respect. I don't know. I, I suppose mean, you could have a relationship, and I don't mean this because obviously we don't have a strictly colleague-based relationship, but you could. it could just be that that is yeah. their colleagues in that sense. That they have a job to do together. They both do their part yeah. of the job. But I don't think that's how they describe it. He talks about how they've been off to the Alps and climbed together. And I don't know, because I've done quite a lot of climbing. That isn't how the climbing community works that I've been part of. And obviously, I'm not part of it in the mid-1980s. But it is if you are climbing with someone, it's a proper partnership. It's a proper deep yeah. trust. Hmm. Even if they're going up a wall and you're sports climbing, if you're on the other end of that belay, if you're belay bunny then, you know, their life is in your hands and I don't think it can be quite as transactional. Because of what happened afterwards, I think. Because Simon Yates, obviously, he criticised the film. He said he came across, mm. he thought he came across badly. And I, and I don't see that at all. No, I don't either. But I think that's guilt. I think he has unresolved guilt because of what happened to him afterwards. And I think that's what affects him. 
I think climbers are different. They're yeah. doing something that they could die doing. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and and not to keep going on about this, but they're very young, and they clearly come from, like I say, Simon Yates is a very northern man, a very sort of plain speaking, but also yeah. sort of emotionally hidden a bit. They're, they're from the generation before us as well. Yeah, they're yeah. Like, and they're men, and they yeah. compartmentalise. <laughs> But I think it's what makes it really English, and that's what I like about it. I like yeah. the fact that it, mm. it's not emotional. Yeah, I really like that too. I don't think he comes across badly in it. I think he just comes across as, like, different. But only in this, like, one bit particularly. I don't think he comes... I think, you know, it's understandable what he did, isn't it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I don't think he comes across badly at all. And when I was reading around why he felt like he'd been burned by this film, he said it felt really one-sided, the account of what happened, and how quickly... It looks like he'd cut the rope when actually he'd sat there in minus 80 degrees for an hour and a half. And he says, like, the decision wasn't even a decision. And it's interesting to me that there's a bit where Joe and Joe Simpson has always defended Simon. Yeah. And actually, Simon Yates has said that he wasn't really attacked by the climbing community. He wasn't massively criticised in the way that the film depicts. I know it's just like end of credit card that says that he was really criticised by the climbing community. And he's like... Oh, Some elements of the climbing community. Yeah, and he said it didn't yeah. even happen. That didn't really happen. But also, there's a bit where Joe says, he's figured Simon said, and he's like, I'm going to use his body as a counterweight, which yeah. equally feels quite emotionless to us watching it when you're not in that scenario where you're like, this is a life or death thing for me. What survival instincts will kick in? So yeah, I think they both come across as decent guys i don't think there's a moral question in it at all but also i think you're right about climbers or people who do extreme sports it's a whole different plane to anything that you know we would understand mm. i don't have the desire to put myself in danger that already makes you a little bit odd in my books and while i might enjoy like hearing mm. your stories or watching you do those incredible feats i don't have it in me to want yeah. to even try that well, I think it would uh, yeah. take a very specific mind or mindset, wouldn't it, to be like, "I'm going to dice with death on the reg," kind of thing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah I'm, not for me. It seems inarguable that if he hadn't cut the rope, like I say, the two of them would be dead, and possibly Richard would be dead as yeah, well. That, totally that agree seems with inarguable. You. Yeah, because otherwise, who's Joe getting down the mountain to? It's really interesting as well that they did succeed in doing something incredible. And in the past nearly 40 years, so 1985 they made that climb, only two more people have successfully ascended the Sierra Grande's West Face in all of that time. And obviously this film made it a thing that people wanted to do, which is a bit insane to me. People were yeah. like, oh yeah, we should do that. But, you know, that's how those brains work. And lots of people have tried and only two more men have succeeded in getting up that mountain on that side. Isn't that staggering? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. And also the fact that Joe Simpson kept climbing. Like, after that, oh. he kept climbing. He climbed until 2009 when, and this is his quote, all the checks I had cashed in my 20s came through. <laughs> and he just <laughs> was in such pain and on a descent that he had to stop. And he said he grieved the loss of climbing for, like, five years. Now I feel like my powder has been as, as dry as that icing sugar snow. Um, I feel it's been very uh, wet all the way through. And I think this is an absolutely fantastic film. So my answer to rated or dated is a massive rated. What about you two? Rated or dated? Yeah, agree. It's rated. I don't think it can date because it's so simple and effective 
the what is there to date. The story is is brilliant. The acting is brilliant. The reconstruction is brilliant. The cinematography is brilliant. I mean, it could date in the sense that you just said somebody has climbed Sula Grande and the card at the end of this film says that no one has successfully done it since. So that that back card can date. Other yeah. than that, yeah, absolutely rated. No, I agree. I think it's timeless in that sense. So I don't think it's dated. I didn't love it, but that's just a personal preference rather than a criticism of the film itself. What are we watching next week, Hannah? I was moaning that there was nothing. There was nothing. And then I found something. And I think for at least one of us, we would rather have had nothing. I think that one of us is you, though. You? (laughs) Yeah. We're going to watch Four Weddings and a Funeral. Fuckity fuck. My thoughts precisely. You fucking cow. Standard issue for all women.